And before I get into this morning's message, I've got a little bit of good news to share. Could you use some more good news this morning? I know, we always could, couldn't we? Well, this past week, as you know, is a big week here, and this weekend is a big weekend that happens twice a year. It's our biannual, is that the right thing? Semi-annual, I guess it is, really, rummage sale. We raised, for missions, about $12,000 this past weekend. $12,000 so many people put food on their table and just innumerable other ways that, that people will be served. So thank you to all of you. Some of you stayed last week after church to set the room up. Many of you worked throughout the week. We'd like to thank our United Methodist Women, our um, Always Ready Methodist Men, our Mops, Moms, and countless others that made that um, week, week so successful. And, uh, and now it's going to be a blessing to so many other people. So God bless you all. Well, we are in week four of our sermon series that is called, It's Okay to Be Not Okay. Now, you know, we all go through times in our lives when everything isn't okay. I mean, that's just the way life is. We face things like calamity and anxiety, loneliness or divorce, depression, problems with our kids. Uh, sometimes we lose our job or, or we face financial burdens. And all too often, you know, we've been conditioned to say, oh yeah, everything's okay, even when it isn't okay. And so the last few weeks, we've been looking at people in the Bible, people like Job and like King David, who were not afraid to tell God when everything was not okay. And we've been exploring some of these topics in the book of Psalms. Now, lots of us have experienced things in life like disappointment and hurt and pain when it comes to our relationships with other people. I mean, in marriage, we long for the happily ever after ending, but sometimes marriages end in separation and divorce. And if we're single, we may dream for that perfect someone to come along, only sometimes they never do. We may have been born to parents who don't always live up to being the kind of ideal parents that we would like them to be. Sometimes our friends stab us in the back and betray us. And all too often we expect or lay the burden on other people to meet our own core needs and longings in life. Now, most of us grew up watching or reading fairy tales, which all start off with once upon a time, and they end with and they live happily ever after, right? I mean, I think this is true of every Disney movie that has ever been produced. I know my girls watched, 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 watched lots of those when they were growing up. Once upon a time, and they all lived happily ever after, is the way those films go. And in those films, there's always a girl who meets her prince, and she falls in love, and then she gets into some kind of trouble, right? Like she sells her soul for a pair of human legs. Or maybe she um, gets trapped as a hostage in a castle with talking dinnerware and a beast. <laughs> or maybe she disguises herself as a Chinese soldier and she goes off to fight the Huns with all the men. But you know, eventually in Disney movies, everything works out for the best. The problem is resolved and she does live. Come on, say it with me. Happily ever after. You know it. There's something inside of us, isn't there, 
that just longs for a happily ever after kind of ending. Anyone that writes books or produces movies or plays will tell you that those kinds of things always do better. They always settle better when they have a happy ending. Unfortunately, in the real world, happily ever after doesn't happen to the majority of us. And the Bible would actually agree with that, especially Psalm 88, which we're going to be looking at today. One of the passages from our Bible reading plan this past week, and I want to begin in verse 3 this morning. The psalmist says this, I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made them repulsive made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? If your love, is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Pretty uplifting stuff, huh? And the song goes on like this. And then it concludes this way. Verse 18. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. The end. No happy ending. No nice, neat, tidy resolution. Not in this song. Darkness is my closest friend, it ends. Way back in 1964, Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song called The Sound of Silence. How many of you remember that song? It's pretty well known. It's famous again in the movie Trolls. It's out, I think, as one of the songs in the soundtrack. And it opened with these words from Psalm 88. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. And I think every generation has a song like that. Back in the 80s, I got really into alternative rock and roll. And I think one of my all-time favorite bands is a kind of esoteric, not super well-known band called The Smiths. How many of you know The Smiths? Yeah, and Morrissey, their lead singer. Probably their anthem song is called How Soon Is Now. And it's about this guy who's not very, he's really awkward with relationships. And he talks about going to a club. And the refrain is, and you go and you stand on your own, and you leave on your own, and you go home, and you cry, and you want to die. Again, uplifting, right? <laughs> My daughter, Sarah, always teased me when she got old enough to tease me. Dad, that song's not very, that's not very cheery or anything. And then around the year 2000, the Goo Goo Dolls came out with a song called Broadway. And that became instantly one of her favorite songs. It's about Broadway is dark tonight. And the, the key word there is see the young man sitting in the old man's bar waiting for his time to die. Super uplifting, right? Well, about 20 years have passed since then. What's today's anthem that's like that? I'm not really sure. If you do, 
come up and see me afterwards. I will, I'll include it uh, next week in the sermon. But, you know, I think that these kinds of songs speak to some brokenness in us as human beings. We all have relationships that from time to time are just kind of on the rocks. And, you know, that's why we're doing a sermon series like this, because we're all human beings and we face these kinds of things. We need a place and we want to be the kind of church where we can come with all our stuff, where we can be honest and real and raw and not pretend that everything is okay when it's not okay. And so this morning we're talking about disappointment and hurt and pain in our relationships, things like our marriage, our family, our friendships. I know a man who felt like he got kicked right in the stomach when his wife came to him one day and said, I don't love you anymore. I want to get a divorce. And I know a couple of other men who had been friends for years and they started a business together. And then one day they had a falling out and their business fell apart and they haven't spoken in years and years. I know a man whose wife died way, way too early. And all the time that she was sick, he prayed that she would get better, that God would heal her. Only God didn't heal her physically. She died and left him to raise three young children on his own. I know a husband and a wife who live under the same roof, but you know, they're just like ships passing in the night. They're like friends that live in the same house. I know a young single woman who prays regularly that God would bring a, a good, decent Christian man into her life. Only most of the time she feels like God isn't even listening to her prayer. And I know another young man who is estranged from his entire family, broken, where there should be bonds of love, there is only pain and hurt and resentment. Now, maybe you can't identify with any of those situations, I don't know. Maybe none of these categories describe you. Maybe you are in a marriage and it's perfect, and every single day, your marriage gets absolutely better than it was the day before. No blips, no bumps on the road. Maybe you've never had a friend stab you in the back or hurt you. Maybe you've never hurt anyone in return. Maybe you've never even sinned. <laughs> I'm glad you're with me this morning. <laughs> if any of you isn't laughing right now, I want you to come up here and see me after church today. Because I think I'm going to let you preach from now on because you're way more qualified than I am. Well, you know, even Jesus had some pretty difficult relationships with his family and his friends. And Jesus lived a single life and was quite happy, by the way. For the rest of us, we live in the real world. And I don't know of any place where we need more honesty and more authenticity than we do in the church. Clearly, the Bible is not afraid to deal with these kinds of issues, so neither should we be. Often the Bible is more real, more honest, and more raw than we are as church folk. In fact, I think there are some statements that I hear from time to time from church folks about relationships which just aren't true at all. And I want to talk about a few of those this morning. The first one goes like this. You know, if you would only find just the right person, then your marriage would be easy. Have you ever heard something like that before? How many of you think that is a true statement or a false statement? True? Raise your hands. False? Yeah, I think so. Good. You're on the same page with me still. I would put that in the false category because I know this idea is out there that there is just this one soulmate that's made perfectly for you, the one and only one that God has for you. 
And, and you might believe that when you find them, you will know it, and you will marry them, and life is just going to be perfect. Now, there are a lot of people in the Bible who are married. I want to think about some of them today. If you think to yourself about some stories in the Bible, some people in the Bible that you've read about that are married, and I were to ask you which one, which couple in the Bible had a perfect marriage, who would you name? Who in the Bible has a perfect marriage? Would you, would you maybe name Abraham and Sarah? Would they come to mind? Well, you know, Sarah, the Bible tells us Sarah was really beautiful. And one time, Abraham and Sarah went down into Egypt for a time, and, and Abraham lied and said that Sarah was his sister because she was so beautiful, he was afraid that someone would steal her from him if he didn't lie about it. Now, I am here to stand to tell you today, lying is never good for a marriage. So that probably isn't a great example for us to name. What about Jacob and Rachel? One of the, the patriarchs of, the, of, the, of our faith. You know, the Bible does say that Jacob loved Rachel more than anyone else. So that might be a good choice. But how many of you know that Jacob was also married to Rachel's sister, Leah? Why do you think that was going to be a good choice? No, I don't know. And they had children together. Both women had children with Jacob. And then even their maidservants had children with them. In fact, one time they got so jealous of each other, they had a contest to see who could bear Jacob the most children. That's kind of a disaster waiting to happen, I think. <laughs> Jacob did not have a perfect marriage. Well, what about Queen Esther and King Xerxes? They had a great love story, didn't they? And how many of us don't um, marvel at the idea of a princess marrying the king and the king and queen living happily ever after. I mean, look at William and Kate or Harry and Meghan and how much um, brouhaha that conjures up. We love that kind of um, idea, don't we? But actually, Esther became queen only because Xerxes' previous wife, Vashti, stood up to her husband one time when he was absolutely drunk, and she embarrassed him in front of all of his friends. And so he left her, ditched her, and married Esther. And Esther was one of 127 women that were in the harem. Again, I don't know why they thought that was going to be a good idea. I mean, it doesn't sound very good, especially to our modern ears, does it? You know, it's funny... A lot of people think that the Bible is just a collection of these fairy tales that have a happy ending, but the Bible never ends that way. It never says they got married and they lived happily ever after. In the Bible, marriage never delivers happily ever after. In the Bible, only Jesus ever delivers happily ever after. There's a pastor and an author by the name of Tim Keller, and he says that in our culture, we believe that marriage exists to make us happy. I mean, just watch any romantic comedy or read any romance novel and you'll find that that's true. But according to the Bible, marriage does not exist to make us happy. Marriage exists to make us more like Jesus. Marriage exists to kind of sand off the rough edges in our life, to make us see ourselves as we really are and to recognize how much more we need to be like Jesus for our spouse. I'll tell you a little secret. If you are married, the most important thing that you can know this morning as you sit here is that you are a sinner. 
And the second most important thing that you can know this morning if you are married is that you also married a sinner. I mean, that's just the way it is. I hate to get up all up in your business this morning. If you didn't know that already, then I'm glad you're here today because you know what? We all need to know that. And marriage, even friendships, all of our relationships stand to make us more like Jesus Christ. You know, the truth is that every single one of our relationships can do that, can, can transform us more into Christ-likeness. I've had friends that have done that for me. My wife has certainly done that for me. Other family members have done that for me. Even enemies can do that for us. Sometimes they do that more than anyone else, right? I've had some people that I've had a real tough time with over the years. And often they make me sit up and stand up and take notice of who I am, my brokenness, more than anyone else in my life. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, was absolutely a remarkably brilliant, intelligent, wonderful theologian. He graduated from Oxford University over in England, and then he started a movement that changed the face of Christendom both on that side of the Atlantic Ocean and on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Thousands of people came to faith because of John Wesley, and thousands more are doing it still today in parts of the world, especially in Africa and in Asia. And you know what? John Wesley had a terrible marriage. He was in his late 40s when he finally got married, and he married a widow. And he kept a journal all of his years, and, and he wrote in that journal uh, once he got married that he never planned to slow down his preaching or his schedule. He was a workaholic. How many of you think that is good for a marriage? Well, his marriage lasted only about seven years, and then it fell apart. He moved out, and, uh, and he did not have a marriage that ended happily ever after. He wrote um, about deciding whether to marry or to stay single in his journal, and, and he said this. He said, which state can I be the most holy and do the most good? I think that's something wise to think about. The only problem is I don't think he thought about it very much. He should have stayed single. Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So, in other words, when Jesus comes back, you're going to appear with him in your glorious state. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? You see, there are two yous. There's the you that's sitting here today and the me that's here today, the, the current you, the sinful you, the, the flawed you, the messed up you. And then there's the you that God sees in Christ Jesus, the glorious you, the you without all of that stuff clinging to you, the you that is the God, the, the you that God created you to be. And when you fall in love, I think part of what happens is you get a little glimpse of the glorious you of the person that you fall in love with, right? You know that. If you've ever fallen in love, you see that person as perfect. You see them as the glorious you that God created them to be. The only thing is, we're still sinful while we're on this earth. And, and marriage is, is one of those things that's just a great flaw detector. You can't live in that kind of a close relationship without sooner or later seeing the flaws in, in your mate, in your husband, or in your wife. 
Marriage doesn't create those flaws, but it does expose them. You can talk to Marge after worship today. She's here. Don't tell him too much, Marge, where you are today. You know, we all look pretty good from across the room, right? It's when we get really up close and personal. When our mate discovers the real us, the, the me that, that I can't hide, the me that is anxious, the me that is angry, the me that is jealous or greedy, the judgmental me. No, the purpose of marriage is not to make us happy. The purpose of marriage is to sanctify me, to help turn the current sinful me into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. Well, the second statement that you might hear people say goes something like this. There is a perfect someone out there for you. Have you ever heard that? What do you think? Is that true or is that false? It's false, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about that a little bit. Remember, we're all sinners, so we can't really be perfect out there. If you're single, maybe you've had some well-meaning people say something like this to you. You know, just learn to be content in God first. And if you learn to be content in God, then then God will bring that perfect someone into your life. Well, maybe, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Or I've heard other people say something like, you know, this is just a test of your faith. You have to pray with absolute certainty, pray with more faith. And if you have more faith, then God will bring that perfect someone into your life. Again, maybe, maybe. The Apostle Paul also has some interesting things to say about singleness and marriage in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7, 27 to 31, he says, Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean is, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short, for this world is passing away. I think a lot of people tend to read writings from the Apostle Paul and think that he was somehow against marriage. I don't think he was. First of all, notice that he says in this passage that the time is short. I believe that Paul thought that Jesus was coming back so soon that it just didn't make any sense to waste time marrying and starting a family because Jesus was coming back and the world was going to end. New Testament scholar Stanley Hauerwas thinks that both Jesus and Paul, who were single, by the way, were presenting an alternative point of view to the culture of the day in which they lived. And perhaps for ours too. Because for the first time in the history of religious life, singleness started to be presented as another way of life. Marriage wasn't necessarily the road to all happiness. Jesus and Paul both led joy-filled, wonderful, abundant lives as single men. Well, eventually the Roman Catholic Church institutionalized singleness and celibacy for its church leaders. And then along came the Protestant Reformation and, and we rebelled against that. And, but it still changed the way forever people look about at singleness, especially in religious life. I read not too long ago an article about a man who believes that God actually called him to a life of singleness. And here is what he wrote. 
He said, when I was first making the decision to pursue singleness, I felt stabs of pain as I realized I would never attend my child's soccer game, that I would never kiss my wife goodnight. But then, from the grave of those dreams have risen even better ones. For God is calling me to things I would never have been able to imagine to do as a married man. I gave up a good thing, he says to God, and found God will not be outgiven. You see, the ability to be celibate and satisfied in Christ is a wonderful gift that God does give to some people. Well, a third statement that you might have heard is, is, goes something like this, that if you are in a bad relationship, that if you just pray hard enough, that God will heal that relationship. And sometimes that's true. I hope and I wish that it was always true, but it, it isn't. I have known some people that have gone through some things in their marriage that I didn't think they would ever be able to live through. And with God's power and with hard work and determination and commitment, they've made it through in a beautiful way. Only God can do something like that. But on the other side, that isn't always the case. Often, though, if both the husband and the wife want a marriage to work, it will work. But when one of them doesn't, it becomes really hard. And often divorce ends up what happens. I want to say here today that if you find yourself in that situation today or at some time in the future, this church is a place that will stand by you and surround you and love you. No matter which side of that equation you might be on, the husband or the wife. Not too long ago, shortly after Billy Graham died, I was reading an article it was based on an interview that Ruth Graham once gave to a magazine. You know, that marriage, although it was very strong, also was under a lot of stress from time to time. Billy Graham traveled the world um, with his evangelistic message, and, and Ruth raised the children in a lot of time on her own. And so this interviewer once asked her, in all your years of marriage and the difficult times of marriage, did you ever consider divorce? And Ruth Graham replied, no, I never once considered divorce. I considered murder a number of times, <laughs> but I never considered divorce. Humor can do a lot for a marriage as well. You know, many of us have experienced disappointment and hurt and pain as it relates to our relationships with others. In marriage, we long for the happily ever after ending but we don't live in that kind of make-believe world. Sometimes separation and divorce do happen. If we are single, we dream of that perfect someone who is out there, only sometimes that perfect someone never comes on the scene. Parents are not always what we wish they would be. Children don't always get raised and turn out the way we try to raise them. Our friendships sometimes are not all that we wish they would be. Psalm 88 is strikingly real about realities like this in life. When we are in this place, we need also to be real and honest, to be able to say, I am not okay, because that is actually a very important part of our faith. You know, we often expect other people to be the ones that meet our own core needs and longings in life. 
And yes, sometimes we can get those needs and longings met through other people to a degree. But you know, only God can truly meet our deepest needs and longings at our deepest level. If we will look to God with our deepest needs, God will be able to satisfy us. God will be able to help us relate in healthy ways to our spouse and to our children, to our friends and to other important people in our life. The most important relationship in life is the personal relationship that you have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Every other relationship will begin to fall into place when you begin to make your priority your relationship with God. For when we go to him for fulfillment, God will never let us down. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a God with whom we can be real. When the world falls apart, when we face calamity or destruction, you are there. And even, God, when our relationships fall apart, those most important to us, our, our spouse, our friends, our parents, our children, the closest relationships in God life, in God, in life, God, you, you help us through. And so thank you for that word today. Help us to be real and honest with you. And more than anything else, God, help us to put our faith and hope and trust in, in, in building our relationship with you. God, where there needs to be work done, where we need to say, I'm sorry, or forgive me, or I love you, or try another avenue to seek reconciliation, give us the gift of your grace, God. Empower us by the gift of your Holy Spirit to reconcile and to find wholeness in, in our human relationships. But more than anything, God, we pray that we would find wholeness and hope and life that is abundant and good in you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, we've been doing a lot of awesome things in our church through prayer lately. Anybody seen that? It's been really cool to watch. So um, what we've been doing is just asking people to come up and get prayed for, even during the last song. So while we sing this last song, while we worship, there's going to be a prayer team, and they're going to come up to each corner of the room. And if God's tugging on your heart to do some business with Him or to receive that freedom that we're talking about, if you're dealing with something or maybe you're not dealing with anything and you're frustrated because your life just feels like it's just kind of going, why don't you come up and get prayed for? And uh, I just believe that in that surrender and in that obedience, God's going to do something cool. So pray you go ahead and come up and we're going to sing this last song. Let's continue to worship. Let's stand together. Come on, sing with me. Sing worthy. Worthy of every song that ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Yes, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for Him. This is His name, Jesus. Jesus, the name above every other name. It is. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. 